John chapter 21, beginning in verse one, it says, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going to go with you also. They went out and immediately they got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from land. But about 200 cubits dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise, the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. John chapter 21 is a kind of a postscript. It's an epilogue of the events of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Warren Wearsby says, and I quote, the final chapter shows Christ as the master of our service and the friend of sinners, unquote. I like that. The master of our service and the friend of sinners, the events surrounding the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus has left the disciples crowded with a lot of conflicting emotions. Joy in the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. Grief because the post-resurrection appearances seem few and far between and way too short. And then there is that lingering, stinging failure of not having been there when Jesus needed the most. Jesus is risen from the dead. That's what the John, John's gospel proclaims. Jesus 
has risen from the dead and Jesus is alive. But you've got to understand something. They have to ask the same question that you have to ask yourself. How is it that I live in light of the fact that Jesus is alive? What does that mean to me? And John knows that the reader has a lot more questions like, dude, what happened to John? Or excuse me, what happened to Peter? What happened to these people? Clearly, he's disappointed the Lord. Has he ever been restored? What does that mean that Jesus is the master of my service and the friend of sinners? What does it mean? Maybe last week you prayed a prayer of invitation, inviting Jesus into your life. You believe that Jesus is the Lord and you... You think, what does that mean, though? How am I going to live the day after tomorrow and the day after that? How am I going to get up in the morning and what am I going to do with my life? And how am I going to go forward? What am I going to do if I prayed the prayer and I still managed somehow to fail Jesus? Now what do I do? The final chapter in John's gospel is going to show us how the Lord will recall Peter's failure and how the Lord will rekindle Peter's fervor and then eventually how he will reshape Peter's future. And guess what? When Jesus helps Peter recall his failure and when Jesus helps Peter rekindle his fervor and when Jesus eventually begins to reshape Peter's future, it's okay for you to ask and answer the question, what about my failure? What about my fervor? What about my future? It begins with a return to the old business. Look at verse 1. After these things, in the, in the Greek language, it's, it's dramatic. Metatauta. It means after the things of all of the things that you've just read for the first 20 chapters. It's all of the, the miracles that he's performed and the signs that he's shown and the things that he's done. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. By the way, if you have an opportunity to go with me to Israel sometime, invariably we make our way to the Sea of Galilee. It was formerly called the Sea of Tiberias. The Hebrew people called it Genitzerot, the Lake Gennesaret. To this very day, the lake provides an income for people who fish the Sea of Galilee. When we were there, do you remember seeing the people throwing their nets into into the lake? But of course, there's far more to be made from ferrying tourists from Tiberias to Kibbutz Ginotsav. You show up and you get on one of these boats and it's it's great fun. And in verse 2, it says Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and the two of others of his disciples were together. When I first read this, I couldn't help but think of Gilligan's Island. The ship set sail from ashore of this uncharted desert isle with Gilligan, the skipper, too. So I'm looking at this cast of characters. Three are named. Two are implied, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And two remain unnamed and when you read it, it it reminds you of 
Christians in every generation. Remember, Simon Peter had forsaken and and denied Jesus. Has personal failure ever caused you to backslide? Have you woken up one morning and found yourself cold or callous or bored? Have you forgotten the calling of Christ in your life? Or are you like Thomas? Are you the doubting Christian? Do you doubt the word of God? Do you doubt the power of God? Do you doubt the place that God has for you? Or do you find yourself walking by sight and circumstances instead of faith and trust? Or are you like Nathaniel? Have you found yourself in this irrational cycle of criticism and complaint? It's too hot. It's too cold. Early in Jesus's ministry, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, you'll remember these were the guys who who (laughs) uh, they basically suggested to their mom, look, go to Jesus and, and ask Jesus who can sit at your right hand and your left hand when we come into the coming kingdom. Let's just be blunt here. James and John are the glory hounds. Look, we want to be a part of the ministry, but we want to be a part of the ministry that's dramatic and visible. We want to be a part of the ministry where everyone sees us. Sometimes Christians do find themselves in a place of seeking their own glory rather than God's glory. And by the way, if you're a Christian who's more concerned about your own recognition If you're a Christian who says, look, I am ready to serve, but I'm only ready to serve if people will notice my service. If you're a person who's easily offended, if you don't receive the proper recognition that you think that you deserve, then you might be one of these people in this in this story. Now, if for whatever reason you don't identify with Simon Peter and failure, if for some reason you don't uh, identify with Thomas and doubt, if for some reason you don't identify with Nathaniel and complaint and criticism, if for some reason you don't identify with the sons of Zebedee seeking your own glory, there's two unnamed disciples. It might be you. And it might be me. And look at verse three, it says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you. They went out and immediately they got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. I have at least. 35 different commentaries on the gospel of John. Out of the 35 commentaries, at least 30 of them will confidently assert that Peter decides to go fishing quite apart from Christ's specific instructions. They read into this that Peter is going back to the old life. And they might be true. You'll remember when Jesus called Peter to join him, what was his occupation. He was a fisherman. Now think about it. If you're a fisherman and your nickname is the big fisherman, it's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Tell me your name. I'm Peter. They call you can just call me the big fisherman. You know, there's nothing more humiliating than 
if your nickname is the big fisherman and you don't catch fish. That would be like saying your name is the rifle and you're a quarterback for a particular team and you only throw interceptions. (laughs) Yeah, well, when Jesus called Peter, he really was a fisherman. And James and John, they were with Simon Peter the day that Jesus called them. And you'll remember the day that Jesus said to Simon Peter, it's found in Luke's gospel, chapter five. um, The Lord spoke to Peter and he said, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. It says in Luke chapter five, verse 10. And then in verse 11, Luke's gospel continues. And it says, so when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and they followed him. There was a dramatic moment in Peter and James and John's life. They grew up in a particular occupation and they left that occupation and they followed Jesus. Well, does this mean that Peter and the others decided to return to their old employment? Is this one step backwards? Perhaps. Whatever else it means is. These men find themselves in a circumstance after Jesus has risen from the dead and they find themselves in a circumstance where they are asking the right question. Well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What should we do? Clearly, the disciples believe that Jesus has risen from the dead and maybe you do, too. You've been here long enough and you've you've spent enough time in John's gospel that you go, okay, okay, I am willing to concede that Jesus had a supernatural life. I am willing to concede that he did remarkable things. I'm even willing to concede that he died and he rose from the dead. What does that mean for me now? How should I live my life now? For this group of men... They were still attached to a concept It was the concept of the coming kingdom. And in a very real sense, Jesus is risen from the dead, but he doesn't seem to be making any great moves to recapture the throne of David. You know, there's something pretty dramatic about a resurrected Lord. If now he goes back to the temple and he says to the religious leaders, na, 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 I'm back from the dead. You've got to admit that's going to be a, a kind of a dramatic moment. But in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, you know what you never see? You never see Jesus in the temple and you don't see Jesus in the synagogue. You know where we find Jesus? We find Jesus after he's risen from the dead. In the nuts and bolts, in the dirt of everyday living. That's where you find Jesus. The disciples aren't pursuing kingdom living. And I want to suggest something to you that they've given up way too soon. Hey, look, I don't know what else to do. So I guess I am going to continue to live my life as if it doesn't matter that Jesus rose from the dead. Does that make sense to you? It can't make sense. When Jesus has saved you and redeemed you, it must mean that you have to live some kind of a different life. 
And I'm going to suggest to you they've given up way too soon. Peter's comment is heard and followed by the others. I'm going fishing. Six disciples followed him. You may think that your decisions make no difference, but you would be absolutely wrong. I'm not going to church. The choice that you make will affect your husband. It will affect your wife. It will affect your children. It will affect your friendship. It will affect everyone around you. You have a powerful influence, whether you're willing to recognize it or not. Someone called me on my radio program and they said, you can't say that. Why? Because you're a person of influence. What? When you say certain things, Gino, people listen and they might even believe you. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I do. I say, come to the church and you can laugh with the rest of the audience. (laughs) Sometimes the seed of success is sown in what looks like the ashes of failure. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of Abraham Lincoln For those of you who've had the privilege of reading his biographies, historians tell us that Abraham Lincoln had a difficult childhood. You might think that you had a troubled childhood, but Lincoln had an amazingly difficult childhood. He had less than one year of formal schooling. He failed in business in 1831. He was defeated for the state legislature in 1832. He failed again in business in 1833. He was elected to the legislature in 1834. His fiancée died in 1835. He was defeated for speaker in 1838. He was defeated for elector in 1840. He married a wife who would become an an immense burden in his life in 1842. And only one of his four sons lived to, to see the age of 18. He was defeated in Congress in 1843, and then he was elected to Congress in 1846. He was defeated again in 1848. He was defeated again for the Senate in 1855. He was defeated for vice president in 1856. He was defeated again in the Senate in 1858, and he was elected president of the United States in 1860. Can you imagine if if Lincoln at any time in the process would have said, Enough. I've had enough. I can't bear one more failure and I can't bear one more disappointment. And maybe for some of you. You think of your spiritual life in Christ, not so much as a series of successes, but as a series of of failures and restorations. And maybe one of you, maybe even two of you is right on the precipice. And you're seriously, you're seriously thinking about living a life of unbelief and detachment from the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, it says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. When the proverb 
writer says that the righteous man will fall seven times. The implication isn't seven and only seven. The implication is that the righteous man may fail, but he or she is going to get up and they're going to get up again and they're going to get up again and they're going to get up yet again. I've disappointed God and I've failed God and I've failed my family and I've failed my church. Get up. Get up. The Bible says if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Get up. Winston Churchill said, success is never final and failure is never fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. It's too soon to quit. It's too soon to stop. Can you imagine, Peter? Jesus died probably at least three weeks or two weeks before this happened. Life with Jesus seems so long ago and Peter is fighting to find a way back. George Burns used to joke, I honestly think it's better to be a failure at something you love than to be a a success at something you hate. That's one of the real reasons why I never wanted to be a Christian. I am a success at being a sinner. And I'm a complete failure at being a saint. That might shock you. Wait, wait a minute. You're the pastor of the church. <laughs> yeah, I am the pastor of the church. And I wish I could say to you that my most disappointing failures took place as an unbeliever, but I would be lying to you. My most disappointing failures came after I became a Christian. Because just like everyone in that tiny little ship, there were moments of failure and there were moments of doubt and there were moments of criticism and there were moments of stark raving unbelief. And the text reads. That night they caught nothing. Isn't that interesting? Can you imagine Peter gets into the boat and as soon as Peter gets into that boat, do you think that there's a lot of memories in that boat? That boat had weathered many a storm. And because that boat had weathered many a storm, can you imagine, can you imagine you go out and you're a fisherman and that's what you do and you go out and you you work hard and you work all night and you have nothing to show for it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever started to do something and you worked hard at it and all of a sudden the computer freezes up and the whole document is gone? Yeah, you laughed because it's something as stupid as a document. But can you imagine you've spent months at a particular thing that you're doing and you have nothing, you have nothing to show for it? 
Peter's futile attempt to catch fish it becomes an illustration. It becomes a lesson for all of us. We will all experience at one time or another some deep disappointment, some failure. But even the failure of catching fish is going to serve as an illustration of what happens when the resurrected Jesus shows up. And look at verse 4. It says, but when the morning had now come, they had been at it all night. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Now, I know what you're asking. John's remembering the morning after. There is Jesus. He's on the shore. His appearance is instantaneous. It is abrupt. It is immediate. And it's unexpected. Do you think that they thought, oh, this is going to be the morning that Jesus shows up? And I know what some of you are asking, and it's okay for you to ask this question. Well, why didn't they recognize him? I mean, you would think that when you spend three years with a person, when you live with them day in and day out, even if they've risen from the dead, you're going to sort of recognize them. So why didn't the disciples recognize him? Is it because of the distance from the shore? Did the morning fog hide his appearance? Did he look radically different in a post-resurrection body? I'm going to suggest to you that the problem probably wasn't physical. And it probably wasn't environmental. The Bible actually doesn't even tell us why they didn't recognize him. It just simply says that they didn't recognize him. And I'm going to suggest to you the reason why they didn't recognize him is because of some spiritual issue. One of two things happened. Jesus withheld the recognition for reasons that I don't completely understand or they are unable to perceive. We know at least one of them, John, the apostle who's written this book, clearly comes to the place where they recognize Jesus. But I'm going to suggest something to you that that it's a spiritual issue. Sometimes, even in the shortest amount of time, it is unbelievable how quickly a disciple and a Christian can forget what Jesus looks like. Well, when are you least likely to recognize Jesus? You're least likely to recognize Jesus when you haven't been praying. You're least likely to recognize Jesus when you haven't been worshiping. You're least likely to recognize Jesus when you have failed to provide for yourself an opportunity to spend time with him, to walk with him and talk with him and open up your Bible. And as you hear his words and as you witness his deeds, guess what? The familiarity begins to grow. And as the familiarity begins to grow... You see him. Unbelief will bring empty nuts. And the lack of recognition. Let me ask you a question. Would you recognize Jesus if he showed up in your life? Would you recognize him if there he was standing on the shore beckoning you to come forward? 
But there's a voice. It's a familiar voice. And in in verse five, it says, then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? I know what some of you are thinking. What is it with this resurrected Jesus? He's kind of this really preoccupation with food. Last week, it was fish tacos. This week, fish tacos again. And you might be thinking, is it because Jesus just loves the food channel? I'm going to guess that he does. But it is more than just a recognition and admiration for the food channel. Jesus is trying to do something. He is reminding all of his disciples that the same Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead, that the same body that he died with is the same body that he rose from the dead with, that this isn't some supernatural, mystical manifestation. This isn't just the, the, the wishful thinking on, on the part of a group of people who desperately wanted to make their own religion come to life. Jesus has really risen from the dead. And it's very, very difficult to eat breakfast with a ghost. I know. I've seen at least two episodes of The Ghost Whisperer. And even when she whispers with those ghosts, they never eat on the program. And when Jesus said, children, have you any food? The word translated food may not seem all that important to you. It's the Greek word pros, phagion. It only occurs here in the Greek New Testament. It literally means something that is eaten with bread. And clearly... In the ancient world of the Greeks, it meant something that you would eat with bread. And in, in the only way that you can figure out what it is, it is in its context. And clearly the context here means fish. But when Jesus asks them, children, have you any food? Clearly there is a need for temporary food. But there's also eternal food. Do you remember in John chapter four earlier when when the disciples went to go find something to eat and Jesus sat next to a woman and told her about eternal life. And when the disciples finally came back saying, we brought you food and he said, I have food that you don't know about. He was talking about food from his father. He was talking about spiritual food that doesn't just satisfy the physical circumstances, but it's it's the spiritual circumstances. And so the Savior's question becomes a searching question. Children. Have you any food? Now, this is what's interesting. Once you come to that place where you believe and recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. You come to that place where you realize that he is alive and he is alive now and he wants you to depend upon him today. That the prayer that you learned as a little child isn't some sort of just ritual that you embrace. Heavenly Father, give us this day our daily bread. It isn't just a ritual that you embrace, but rather it becomes a plea for help as you cry out to God to make a provision for you in this very moment. 
Jesus will get up each and every day and ask you each and every day, are you hungry? Is there an emptiness inside of you? Is there a desperate longing? I'll fill your heart. I'll fill your life. It isn't just simply about feeding a temporary hunger. But remember, it's about providing a mechanism of joy and eternal life. That's why Jesus had said earlier in John's gospel that come to me if you're hungry and I'll feed you. Come to me if you're thirsty. And remember, he said, come to me and out of your innermost being will come rivers of living water. It becomes a type and a picture of, of something springing up inside of you that becomes satisfying all the time. We depend on the Lord for daily bread and we understand that he is, in fact, the bread that's come down from heaven. But the disciples, as they are estranged off the shore and they've been laboring all night, they just think that it's a person said, hey, have you caught anything? Some of you who have gone fishing, it's the fisherman's call, isn't it? Catch anything? There's really always two answers. Yes or catch anything? No. Hey, tell me your name again. The big fisherman. Oh, wow. Sorry. They confess failure. But by the way, it isn't just simply a confession of failure, but it becomes a mechanism in order to have what you really need. I'm hungry. I'll feed you. I've been at it all night and nothing happened. Depend upon me. What happens when we fail to believe in what Jesus has for us? The disciples had failed in their faith and they failed because, again, in part, they're relying on human effort. And in their human effort, they are going to go home empty handed. Now, is it possible that you can do something in human effort and you seem to have something to show for it? I think that that's possible. But here is the point that the scriptures try to make. If you try to accomplish spiritual things through human effort, the reality is the things that matter most can only come through the power and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you find yourself day after day empty handed? then maybe this is the time to recognize the work of Jesus in your life. Look what it says in verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. <laughs> Earlier in John's gospel, when that happened, when Jesus pushed off from shore and Jesus had earlier asked Peter, have you caught anything? I've been at it all night and I haven't caught anything. Well, cast your net on the other side. Look, I am the big fisherman. 
If anybody knows about fishing, it's me. But, hey, because you're Jesus, in order to humor you and have a laugh, all right, I'll cast it on the other side. And you'll remember he caught so much fish that the net broke. Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. And the disciples had fished from all sides of the boat. And they had fished from all sides all night long. And Peter and James and John had spent many nights on this lake. And the boat was a good boat. And clearly the lake really did have fish. And the net was just fine. The real issue wasn't where and how they were fishing, but under whose guidance and whose direction and whose blessing Will Peter and the others listen to the master fishermen and will they learn the lasting lesson? And that becomes really part of the instruction for us. This isn't about physical or geographical location and the wrong side. Think about what he's saying. Cast it on the right side. Is he talking about political left and political right? I don't think so. What's he talking about? The wrong side. The wrong side is when you try to do things apart from Jesus. The wrong side is when you try to receive instruction apart from Jesus. The wrong side is when you have reliance on something other than Jesus. That's the wrong side of human effort. And the right side is dependence upon Jesus. It's the side of the resurrection. It's the side of blessing and power. This is the side where Jesus lived and the Holy Spirit is present in order to transform your life. Do you want something significant in your spiritual life? I'm going to suggest something to you. That you be willing to listen to Jesus. And then you obey him once he speaks. And guess what? That's exactly what happens. Success follows obedience. Look what it says. So they cast and they were able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Jesus spoke. They obeyed. The blessing followed. It's okay. For you to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want for me? Lord, speak to me. Lord, tell me what it is that you desire from me and for me. And they'd be, then be willing to listen to what he has to say. I want you to love me and I want you to trust me and I want you to depend upon me. I want you to open up your Bible and I want to remind you what I look like and what I sound like so that when the Spirit's presence comes, you recognize that it is in fact the Holy Spirit. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 1, you'll remember it says, So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. It's the same sea, the Sea of Tiberias. If you have a Bible, just turn there real quick to Luke chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, So it was as the multitude passed and pressed 
about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake and he saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Jesus has been in this boat earlier. He asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. Can you imagine? Can you imagine when Peter and the rest of them were out fishing that night? Do you think it ever crossed Peter's mind? I remember. Do you remember when Jesus stood right here at this boat and he spoke to the multitudes? There was a time when Jesus used my boat as a platform and a podium to preach the gospel. There was a time in your life when God used your car to bring people to church. God used your work in your business and your circumstances and your resources There was a time when the things that you had and the things that were yours became a mechanism and a platform. It was Jesus who used your restaurant. It was Jesus who used your business. It was Jesus who used your car. It was Jesus who made the provision for you. It was Jesus who used to use the resources that you used to have. When he'd stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, Master, we've toiled all night, caught nothing. Big fisherman. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Peter's having a, one of those deja vu moments. What Yogi Berra used to call, it's deja vu all over again. Yeah, you got to love him. Peter's having one of those moments. Peter goes, this has happened before. This happened before and we caught a bunch of fish and I don't remember the exact number. I do remember that the nets were began to break. I do remember that he instructed from the boat. I remember that that night was a night of complete failure. And this night was also a night of complete failure. Oh, Christian, by the way. Is it possible that in your life you could have not just one night of complete failure? Is it possible that in your life you might even have two nights of complete failure? I don't need to see any hands. No need to share with me. But look what it says in verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. For those of you who are thinking that Peter was skinny dipping in the sea, that's probably not what this text means. Jewish men would wear uh, an inner garment and an outer garment. The inner garment was very much like a nighty. 
um, no self-respecting man or woman would be seen in public. Imagine that people come to your door late at night on October 31st and it's like 10 o'clock and you're in your jammers. And you hear the doorbell ring. Ding dong. Do you go and do you hand out candy in your jammers? Some of you go, yeah, no problem. No self-respecting person would show up in their jammies. And so Peter puts on his outer court. The old King James says, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked. I like that. It just sounds more PG-13. By the way, the Apostle John recognizes him. Why? Why does John recognize him and everyone else fails to recognize him? Again, I'm going to suggest something to you. Because even after the resurrection, here is the apostle and he is loving and serving and communing with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is praying. He is embracing all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has. He recognizes him. And it's, he says it's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and he plunged into the sea. Here is the idea that even in a night of failure, you have two kinds of people. Those who come at Jesus with everything that they have and those who just stand by and sort of make their way back. Maybe slowly, maybe reluctantly. I'm going to point out to you, there were two kinds of disciples that morning. Those that ran and swam as hard as they could to make it to the shore. And those who took their time. Oh, it's Jesus? Dude, okay, no problem. One oar in front of the other. We'll just sort, we'll eventually get there. And I'm going to encourage you that the moment that you realize and recognize that Jesus is calling you and that Jesus is speaking to you and that Jesus wants to be able to communicate with you, make a run towards the Lord. Look at verse 8. It says, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fish. Now think about it. There's a larger boat and there's a little boat. And what is happening is the net is stretched between a large boat and a little boat. And what they are doing is they're dragging that particular part of the ocean in order to find the fish a cubit, by the way, is about 18 inches in the, in the ancient way of reckoning space. It was from your elbow to your middle finger. And so depending on if you're a short Jewish guy or a, a fairly tall Italian person like myself, the distances might change. But it makes it about 100 yards off the shore. And it says in verse 9, then as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've caught. Now, isn't this interesting? They come to the shore. There's a warm fire. There's fresh fish and bread. The Lord has set the table. 
And that's what Jesus wants to do for you. He wants to set the table for you. You know, you may be involved in the discipleship group. You may be involved with uh, with some men or with some women or, or in student ministries. And over and over again, you'll hear one of the pastors or you'll hear one of the people who are part of the discipleship program encouraging you to spend some time with Jesus. There's a reason. Not as a religious duty or a religious obligation, but Jesus wants to set the table for you. A place where it's warm and a place where it's nourishing. And in verse 11, it says Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And people have speculated till the cows come home. Why 153? And some scholars have said, well, you know, there's exactly 153 known species of fish in the lake. And I don't think that that's true. I think the reason why they counted all the fish was because earlier in Luke's gospel, it says they caught so many fish that the net broke and Peter just decided to count them out. And look what it says in the net wasn't broken. How can you catch so many fish and the net not break? And the answer is because this is a provision from the Lord. And in this particular instance, I believe that the net becomes a type and a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we share the hope of salvation. We tell people over and over again, God loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus is willing to forgive your sins. All the disciples made it to the shore that day, but only one ran. And Peter had denied the Lord three times. And Peter had aimed to cut off Malchus's head, the high priest's servant, but he missed and he cut off his ear. And what he remembered was that the last miracle that Jesus performed prior to his death and resurrection is that he had to fix a mistake that Peter had made. And I can't even begin to tell you all of the mistakes that I have made. And that Jesus has come to my rescue. To miraculously fix my mistakes. And in verse 12 it says, Jesus said to him, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing it was the Lord. By the way, the verb translated breakfast is aristeo. And it may not mean all of that that much to you, but it, it becomes important because in the original text, it means the first meal of the day. It means break your fast. It was the meaning of the Greek word. The, the idea is Jesus said to them, come and break your fast. Will you accept the Lord's invitation to join him in a time of nourishment and refreshment? That's what Jesus does. Every morning. When you first wake up in the morning, you might be thinking, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? What is this day like? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? But each and every morning, Jesus issues an invitation and he says, come. And break your fast. It's been too long. Since we spent some time together. It's been too long. Come. Come, I'll. 
I'll make a warm, comfortable, nourishing place for you to come. Will you accept the Lord's invitation to join him? In a time of nourishment and and fellowship. And then it says in verse 13, and Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and likewise the fish. Now think about it. Jesus is cooking fish and he's cooking bread. There's no mention of pico de gallo. There's no mention of red or green chili. The meal is simple. But the meal is satisfying. This simple and satisfying meal was designed to awaken the disciples' conscience and to open up their spiritual eyes. And it's going to have profound and it's significant importance for Peter because now his heart is going to be open and his eyes are going to be open. Remember what's happening. Peter is fighting to find his way back to a friendship and a fellowship and a restoration that he once knew before the denial. And maybe some of you are in that place this morning. There was a time of sweet communion and friendship and fellowship. But because of a series of circumstances, you find yourself far and distant from the Lord. Guess what? Jesus is going to awaken your heart and your sensitivities and cry out to you. In verse 14, it says, now this is the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Like I said, As far as we know, he never appeared in the temple. He never appeared in Caesar's palace. He always showed himself in the place where people worked and people lived. He showed himself on the road when people traveled. And he showed himself even when people weren't expecting him to show up. Again, my friend Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Today, we're casting out the gospel net, but often the nets break. There's a seeming failure, and and we don't know how many souls are really one. But when Christ returns, the exact number will be known, and none will be lost. I like that. In other words, how many fish are the net catching? I don't know, but Jesus does know. When we prayed that simple prayer last week, some of you prayed that prayer. Some of you said it quietly inside of your own heart. Some of you said it out loud. In the end, Jesus knows. Peter Marshall said it's better to fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. The cause of Christ will succeed. The gospel will be preached. People will be saved. And the reality is. You will participate. Or you won't. I'm hoping that you do. I wrote you a poem. The ship set sail in the dead of night on the Sea of Galilee. On a journey far from faith and light away from lost humanity. 
And on the shore, a savior stood with fish and bread and life. And in the boat that stayed afloat where were failure, doubt and strife and critics gripe and doubters doubt and dreamers dream and wish. But servants serve and lovers live and some men live to fish. The lake is full. The nets are spread. The Savior's voice is clear. Head for the shore. And know there's more. When Jesus' word is near. Do you see him? Do you recognize him? Do you hear his voice? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray that our hard hearts would be soft. Lord, I pray that our doubt would become certainty. That our criticism would become encouragement. And that, Lord, we would be willing to listen to what Jesus has to say. And Lord, for the person, for that Christian who's been living a life of self-sufficiency, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you and that they would say, Lord, I'm hungry and I want you to feed me. I'm thirsty and I want you to satisfy me. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who, for whatever reason, They've never seen Jesus. They've never heard his voice and they don't seem to have the ability to recognize him. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself. Lord, I pray that you would extend an invitation to them. Lord, I pray that you would cry out to them. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you're willing to forgive their sin. And that you're willing to. Bring them into life, eternal life. Lord, we know that we're all on a journey and that one day we, each and every one of us, will wind up on a different shore. And Lord, I pray that when we wind up on heaven's shore, that we will see your face. And that we will participate by the fire that you've provided and the food that you've provided And the comfort that you've provided. And the fellowship that you've provided. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.